Take your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 6, where we transition from the easy part of the book to the not. All right, this is God's Word. Again, to remind you, written probably 95, 96 AD, but again, marvelous, infinitely wise God wrote it with them in mind and with you in mind, even today. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse! And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard... The second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse. Its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice, the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse This rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us! And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Let's pray. 
And Father, we do ask that you would give life and light to your word. We know your word's perfect. We know we are not. Uh, we know that when there is a lack of understanding, it's not the word's problem. It's ours. And so we ask that your spirit would speak, uh, that we would understand. For Christ's sake, amen. If you've been following the news this week, we've been presented with kind of another kind of cultural moment uh, as a nation, and I would say even as an evangelical church, as to how we're going to think about the world around us. Specifically, uh, our nation destroyed what is by every indication a wicked man in the Middle East who had been, as again we understand, been guilty of killing thousands of people. In fact, actually the week before we killed him, he had 1,500 protesters in his own nation just shot for protesting, as best we can tell. My opening kind of question related to this is not the, the validity of, is he a good man or not? Uh, by every indication that we have, we know he's not. Again, by every indication we have. The opening question is not an issue of, well, should we have done that? Will that destabilize the Middle East? Will that tick off Iran? Are we going into World War III? I'm not gonna, that's not the question here. The bigger question and the one that's being asked in church circles, and I would suggest probably being asked quite poorly, is are we allowed to delight in the destruction of a bad man? Are we allowed to rejoice that a wicked man has received his comeuppance? A guy that this nation has been seeking to destroy for, what, a decade? Have one two-hour window to get him, and we did. And now, again, reading in the blogs and the social media world and just the church in general, a question comes up that we've not yet been able to figure out how to answer as evangelicals. Are we allowed to delight in the destruction of a bad man? It's a really important question because, you know, sometimes if you say, yes, I'm allowed to delight in that. I'm allowed to delight in the administration of justice. Well, people say, well, that just means that you're a jerk, (laughs) that that you're celebrating the downfall of others. You're a jerk. I've been told that. Or you have the other side of saying, well, no, you're not allowed to ever celebrate that sort of justice. We always have to, we're Christians, we have to be hoping for grace. We can't ever celebrate or delight or rejoice in the destruction of a bad man. That's a legitimately hard question. I mean, we've been asking it for how many different leaders in that specific part of the world. <laughs> Were we allowed to delight in Saddam? Osama bin Laden? Who, who, what are we allowed to rejoice in? Is it okay to celebrate? It's an interesting question, and I'll be honest with you, it's the heart of the question that I've been wrestling through in these four chapters, um, five, six, uh, four, five, six, and seven. It's the heart of the question I've been wrestling through with weeks now. Now, regardless of just what's providentially happened in the public sphere, uh, what's happened in our nation and our government It's the heart of the question that if you're going to be an astute reader, you have to answer about chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. 
Because the way these chapters are all pinned together, it's to challenge you to kind of wrestle through one primary thing in chapter 6 and 7 specifically. 1 through 3, the book of Revelation, frame out who Jesus is. He is identified first and foremost as the resurrected king. He is defined in the book of Revelation by his resurrection. He is the victorious, conquering king accomplished in his resurrection. And because he has that victory, he is then able, he has the right, he has the authority to then speak into the churches of his kingdom to say, look, you churches, you may excel at this, you may be rotten at that, you need to change this. He has the authority to, dis- to say that, to administrate them. In 4 and 5, we're taken into an image of kind of, again, a snapshot. Think of, think of the book of Revelation not as one kind of narrative story. If you actually think of it as like one shoelace that you track all the way through the shoe, you're going to be terribly confused. That's not what it's designed to be. The better way to look at this book is if you ever go through like your baby box that mom and dad had when you were a kid and you pull out the giant stack of Polaroids and drop them down and they all kind of splatter and you start looking through, you can tell it's the story of your childhood, but some of it's out of order and some of it are pictures from the same era, though they're at different parts of the stack. It's, it's a bunch of snapshots of life. That's what's happening in the book of Revelation. In chapter 4 and 5, we have a snapshot of how heaven itself rejoices in the victory of the resurrected king. With God on his throne, his praises pouring forth, the angels surrounding him, their their praises pouring forth, the elders kind of symbolic of the people of God uh, pouring forth praise, all of creation pouring forth praise, until in chapter 5 you get to the the real kind of climax of 4, 5, 6, and 7, which is the place where John begins to weep. He's grieving. And again, marvelous to think about the significance of this grieving. How bad does it have to be to be a Christian and still grieve in God's presence? To be a Christian and still mourn in the very throne room of God itself? That's a a serious, serious problem. And he grieves because there's not one who's worthy to open the scroll and the seven seals, which is we've got six of today. And one of the angels comes to him and says, don't weep no more. Weep no more. I love that. Jesus is worthy. And the heart of the question that we have to get to is, is why is it that John, and you get the impression that the angels, the elders, and the very fabric of creation itself are all longing for this scroll to be opened? You know, if I had a vial of the the influenza virus right now, Right here, and you knew that if I broke it, we'd all get the flu. Nobody would be eager for me to open the vial of the flu. Right? Everybody would be like, please take that outside carefully. Right? Don't, don't bump it. Don't knock it. Just, just get it outside safely. We don't want the bad stuff inside to get out. 
Yet interestingly here in chapter 5, you have basically all of creation itself grieving that the scroll hasn't been opened. And so when you get to the point where you start into chapter 6, you would think, man, I'm about to read a list of the good things that all of creation wants. This is supposed to read like the Christmas list that we're all supposed to ask for, but no one ever does. And I want peace on earth. I want goodwill toward men. I want no more sickness. I want no more sadness. That's what's supposed to be coming from this scroll, right? This is the scroll that everything in creation is longing for. This is the scroll that's supposed to fix all of the created order. All right. Let's find out what's in the scroll that's going to fix the entire created order. What is it that Jesus is going to accomplish inside creation? You could say it kind of one uh, slightly different way and kind of set us up for a little bit of success and and fit the flow of the order of worship from earlier. It's really, if you're going to ask the question, what does his kingdom look like? I mean, that's going to be, in essence, the question that's going to get answered is, what does this king, what does his kingdom look like? In chapter 5, we see we're able to to open the scroll. Jesus is able, we're, we're able to partake in the victory because he is the great king. He has accomplished it through the resurrection. He was slain and been victorious. This is what his kingdom looks like. And there's going to be three parts that we see in chapter 6. Four, one, and one is what we're going to look at. And the first part that you see is unexpected. All of creation longing for this scroll to be open, and it gets complicated from the beginning. I watched when Jesus opens the first of the seven seals. It's interesting that he he opens it, and then what happens is the angels around Jesus begin to authoritatively, with the authority of the Lord Christ, begin to call in various people and begin to authorize certain activities. And it's important to note that what's happening here is not some sort of kind of victimology of the people of God. What's happening in chapter 6 is not kind of some sort of, well, aw shucks, I wish it were different, but, you know, doggone it, we're not powerful enough to change it. What's happening in chapter 6 is not the baby Jesus born to a poor, poor carpenter's family and everybody going, well, I mean, he's not that great. Remember, this is taking place in the very throne room of God, again, as we have it kind of portrayed in this book. This is not happening in the manger. This is happening in heaven. And you have, in the very beginning, the angels saying, come, and inviting people into their presence. The first one Jesus invites into his presence through the angels uh, is a bit complicated. Honestly, it's the one we're given the least amount of data on and the one that is probably the most hotly contested amongst all of these. Uh, My understanding of this one uh, is that uh, what you have coming in here is um, the persecution of God's people through kind of fraudulent, um, self-replicating kind of... uh, 
we would call it the spirit of the Antichrist, but that has so much baggage that I don't want you to think about it that way. But to think of those that would pretend to look like Christians, but end up persecuting them. Come, verse 2, look, behold, who comes in a white horse? A white horse is usually, uh, like any good Western, that's usually a sign of the good guys. Usually you would think of. But this one has a bow and a crown, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And the bow and the crown would have seemed okay. We read Psalm 45. Those things are ascribed to the Lord God. But the language of conquering and to conquer gives us the impression this guy's probably not a good guy. Those vocabulary words and the construction, the way they're used in this book, that's usually not the language of a good guy. Maybe in kind of more modern English, we might say, and he came out devouring. Uh, It doesn't give you the good kind of vibe, does it? This one shows up looking like the real deal, looking like a good guy, has all of the appearances of holiness, but he comes devouring. And already that would, if we're kind of reading it, go, well, that's odd. That the first seal that Jesus, the Lord Christ, would open is marked by a devouring of the natural order. Someone is coming in destruction and conquering and go, okay, well, okay, that's odd. But maybe Michael's misread that one. Okay, that's odd. And then you have the second seal in verse 3. And this is the point where you begin to realize that John's actually doing two things. One is he's taking the beginning of Zechariah, chapters 1 and chapter 6 specifically, and ripping off uh, part of the the portrait that's being used in Zechariah of the four horses. Uh, But then also is he's actually combining that with Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel 14 is the list of the destructions that are coming against God's enemies. They're fourfold, and you're getting to see them here. Verse 3, uh, Jesus opens the second seal, and he hears the second angel. This is Come! He calls in the second one, and here you have a rider on another horse that's bright red. Again, the imagery of blood, of guts, of gore and destruction, and its rider was permitted, guess what, to take peace from the earth. So that men should slay one another, and he was given all of the equipment needed to accomplish that. He was given war, and he's very good at it. He's very good at it. And again, this is where, again, if you're an astute reader, this is the point where you're really starting to have to ask hard questions. How is it that all of creation can long for this scroll to be opened? When the things that we've seen coming are, one, the devouring of the created order, and two, war everywhere. The third one is even worse. Famine follows on a black horse. He comes with scales. He's weighing out uh, food to be done. By best guess, this means uh, prices are being inflated by what we can, uh, anywhere from 8 to 16 times. That is crazy expensive. I mean, that, that's where you're going to McDonald's to pick up your, you know, your number one, and the clerk's like, all right, here's your food. That'll be $85. Wow. I'm not super keen on paying $85 for a McDonald's hamburger. I think I'll pass. Thank you. 
Uh, it's gotten worse here. You have, he's been given the gift of famine, and then in verse 7, it gets even worse. Here, it's a pale horse, and uh, the ideal on that one is it's a horse that looks dead because it is. It's a horse whose rider is named Death, and he has a person named Hades following him. And this reads like something out of almost Greek mythology. You have, in essence, Death incarnate coming in, and he's given the authority to destroy. And again, this is the point where if you're a good, honest reader, you're going, John, why were you crying that this wasn't opened? Why were you so concerned? Why were you grieving that this could not be opened? Because the last thing I want to see happen right now is the consumption of the world, war happening everywhere, famine all over the place, and death incarnate coming and destroying everyone around. Why are you crying over this? And I think part of our answer kind of goes back again, actually, where that opening illustration, are we allowed to delight in the destruction of a bad man? I I think actually it comes back even deeper than that is that we've drunk so much from our kind of cultural moment, drunk from the well of our culture that we have in some ways been a bit reductionistic uh, with how we see our Savior. In some ways, we've kind of, we, we've made him smaller and cut out the pieces of his character and the pieces of his story that we just don't like. I, I love how Matthew chapter 10, we read that one on purpose because it was framing out exactly what we think to this. We've been singing for the last <clears throat> six weeks or so. Uh, uh, many of our favorite hymns, uh, and it is amazing to me, again, how many of them are, uh, he comes to, what's the purpose of him coming? To make his favor known, to, to bring peace and goodwill among men. Right? As we've been seeing that for six weeks, and there's certainly an aspect of truth to that. But I don't know if you caught it in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, what the G- Lord Jesus says about himself, his own ministry. <laughs> Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. It's almost like our hymnists have gotten it a little bit wrong. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's Jesus himself explaining his ministry. And honestly, part of that is because so many of our Christmas hymns are written by people who are, um, we'll say, a bit suspect in their theology. And it's probably leaked into their hymn a little bit more than we like. By that I mean we've taken the idea of the pleasant, nice, easy, delightful Jesus. And we've taken that aspect of his character and we've exploded it and expanded it so it's become his primary identifier in our eyes. Who is Jesus? Well, he was nice. I mean, we would never say that. I ask you that when you join the church. I've yet to hear that one. But it is one of the things that I think so often we think about. When we look for our politicians, what do we want? We want politicians that are nice. 
When we look for our friends, we look for friends that are nice. When we look for our pastors, we look for pastors that are nice. When we look for our elders and deacons, we look for men that are nice. We want our children to be nice. We want everything to be nice. And the problem is, is well, many of those things, is really, I, I prefer to have a nice than a not nice. I prefer to have nice instead of a jerk. But what we've done is we've confused gentleness and faithfulness and kindness with niceness. And we've forgotten that, you know, Jesus cleanses the temple, I think, twice, at least once with a whip in hand. The Lord Jesus, kindness incarnate, is beating people with a whip to get them out of the temple. The Lord Jesus, kindness incarnate, looks at people to their face and says, you are a pit of vipers. Again, I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine what happened if I had somebody sitting in my office and just looked them straight in the eye and said, well, here's the problem. The problem is that you're just like your father. He's the father of lies. He was a liar from the beginning and you're a liar too. How's that going to go? Not so well? No, I don't think so. See, there's a problem. Again, we've, we've taken our understanding of the Lord Christ and we've reduced it. And so, in, in essence, we've also then sadly truncated, we've shortened what we understand his kingdom to be. And it's interesting that here in chapter 6, this is not only future-oriented. This is now. This is what the kingdom of God looks like already and not yet. So that when Jesus takes the throne as the resurrected Lamb of God, what does his kingdom look like? First and foremost, it looks like the destruction of a bad man. In fact, actually, all of the bad men and women and boys and girls And the amazing thing here is that as the Lord Christ judges them and destroys them, what he's showing his power to do, what is he using to destroy his enemies? Is he sending out his holy angels? You know, 185,000 Assyrians in one night, is he sending out a legion of angels at this point to cull the world? No, actually, this is prior to the last days. This is prior to the second coming. In fact, this is describing today. What is he using to judge the unbeliever even in our midst today around the world? He's using war and famine and the sword and death and destruction. You say, well, that, I mean, that's, no, go study church history. Go study world history. Look at how the Lord Jesus exercises his victory by killing his enemies, even using these secondary causes of the devil himself. Jesus will be victorious over his enemies. See, I think that's actually the issue as to why John is grieving so much, why he's so concerned that the scroll can't be opened. And then when you get all of this bad news at the beginning, he doesn't freak out. No one in the story here panics when they see war and death and destruction coming. Why? Because that's what they've been waiting for. You've been living under Rome. 
You've been living under emperors that have been seeking to kill you. Yes, of course you're ready for God's enemies to be destroyed. The only reason we don't is because our lives are so easy. You realize the only reason that we're actually even as a country or as an evangelical church having to ask the question, are we allowed to delight in the destruction of a bad man? The only reason we're asking that is because we live in the best country in human history. With the most justice, with the greatest morality and the greatest peace. You grew up in Central Africa or other places, I bet you that's a question that's not going to show up the same way. You grew up in China, wondering if your parents or your past were going to disappear at any given moment. I, I, I suspect that's not a question you ask the same way. You know, we have that joke of saying first world problems. I suspect that's a question that is a first world problem, honestly. Here in these first four seals being opened, we get to see even the heavens rejoicing in the Lord Christ's victory over his enemies. And he's so powerful that he even uses his enemies to defeat themselves. So that when it comes time, we see this in the Old Testament, so that when it comes time to destroy uh, those that are rebelled against him, he can use Assyria, he can use Babylon, and then he can destroy them. (laughs) He can use the Edomites. For the Babylonians to destroy the Edomites, he can use whoever he wishes, though he uh, even is arrayed against them as well. And you go, well, man, that's hard. Well, the chapter doesn't stop, and we do have good news. And in verses 1 through 8, we got to see how one characteristic of the kingdom of God is the destruction of his enemies. By the way, just before we move on, I forgot to say that. Uh, that's why we confess. Did you notice the confession that we used here? How does Christ execute the office of a king? Did you notice how many of these are already present tense? Calling out of the world a people to himself, present tense. Governing them, officers, laws, and censures, present tense. Bestowing saving grace upon his elect, present tense. Rewarding them for their obedience, both present and future tense. Correcting them for their sins, present tense. Preserving, present. Supporting, present. Restraining, present. Powerfully ordering, present. Overcoming, that's future. Uh, And taking vengeance on the road, that's present and future. You see, even now he's executing all of these blessings, all of these tasks currently. So that in verse 9, when we get the second kind of wave of this, the second kind of focus of this, we're not surprised at this point that it would be positive. We are surprised the way that it is phrased. He opens the fifth seal, and finally we get to see the people of God included in this story. The first four are all about the destruction of his enemies. Now we get to see the preservation of God's people, and you get to see how unbelievably tender God is toward his saints. Where are God's people located in the passage It's interesting, they're not located in the world anymore. They're not defined as being constantly interspersed with all of the evil around them. Physically, that is the reality. 
What the Lord Christ highlights here is that it's actually not the physical location that is the reality of the people of God, the saints of God. It is their spiritual location. And I saw where are they spiritually located? Under the altar. The souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. All of God's people are located. And you get to see this amazingly tender portrait of where God keeps his creature, where God keeps his people is he keeps them, one, underneath the salvation of the Lord Christ, but two, is he keeps them close. I mean, it's almost like you have a little bit of a reversal taking place where so much of the Old Testament, you have uh, the Lord's presence marked with his people by being residing within an Ark of the Covenant. And now it's almost like this reversal where you have the Lord Christ and where is he keeping his people until they physically return to him? Where does he keep them? He keeps them preserved in the altar right next to him. And it's intriguing that these saints, these people of God, again, though in God's presence, they have a sense of longing for the last day. This is, again, how we know we're not talking about the future. We're talking about the now. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long until the end? Again, what a a fun thing to think about how the saints in heaven even now long for the, the second coming the same way that we do. There's been, I mean, something I love to think about, been good opportunity to ponder on this with Gramps going home this week to think that, again, the second that Gramps was absent from this body, he was present with the Lord. But even in God's presence, he too is longing for the second coming. One, because he's longing for the vindication of God's people. Two, he's actually longing for his body. He's human, but he's not entirely fully human in the sense of he's missing a body. He's longing for the resurrection where he gets his body back. Longing for the second coming. And you see Christ's response to them again is so tender. It's so kind, but it's so present now oriented. He gave them a white robe, again, that faithfulness, that purity, that holiness that God gives. And he tells them to rest a little longer. It's not time yet. He's protecting them. He's guarding them. He's keeping them. But it's not time yet. Rest a little longer. And here you have the great tension of the kingdom of God that there are two edges to the sword that Christ carries. One is for the preservation and healing and protection of his people. The other is for the destruction, the unmaking of his enemies, the ruining, the consumption, the conquering of his enemies. And it's intriguing how, again, so much of evangelicalism, even today, wants us to feel guilty for one of those two. Wants us to feel guilty for the destruction of God's enemies. No. 
It's part of the very nature of the kingdom of God. It, it defines what his kingdom is like. There's three things that highlighted here. One, the destruction of his enemies. Two, the preservation of his people. And three, the final one, is we get to see a remaking of the created order. Again, this is an already not yet thing as all three of these are. It's already happening in a sense, though it's not yet completely done and it will be different in the end. When he opened the sixth seal, look, I saw and behold, all of the idolatry in the created order was taken away because the created order itself was remade. Earthquake. Moon is black as sackcloth, or sun is black like sackcloth, moon like blood, stars, and terrors. Ah, bad. People fleeing who will protect us from the Lord God. And again, this is an already not yet sort of thing. This is a question that's asked by millions and millions of people every day as they pass from this life into the life to come. This is a reality that's even being accomplished today as the created order is is altered and even perfected through the church itself. You can say created, you know, like a redeemed marriage. Challenging the natural order now. Fighting against the curse, but knowing that at some point in the future it will all disappear. Christ will remake the created order will have new heavens and new earth. Very briefly, the very heart of these chapters, these four chapters that kind of come as a unit, is that wrestling with the question of why is he grieving over this? And your answer comes because this is the definition, this is the nature of God's kingdom. And the challenge that I would kind of encourage us to think about is John's grieving. He's openly weeping before the very throne of God that this hasn't been accomplished yet. And I'm curious if we ever even think about these things. (laughs) John's grieving because it's not yet finished, it's not yet made full. Who's going to be the one who implements uh, the, the great kingdom of God? And I'm wondering, do we ever think about the greatness of the kingdom of God? Do we ever think about the destruction of his enemies? When we heard about the bombings this week, had forced to kind of reconcile, think through our own head in some way, the destruction of this nation's enemies. Do we ever stop to think there will be a day uh, today for some, tomorrow for others, who knows how far in the future for the rest, where they will be confronted with their creator and he will destroy them. Do we think about the Lord sovereignly caring for his people? Do we think about the famines and the destruction and the terrors and the awfulness of the evening news? Do we think about that as Christ implementing his kingdom in the land? It's actually, if you go back to the Westminster Confession, I love the larger catechism, I love the short, I think the Westminster, it's probably the single best thing written, uninspired, anywhere in any language ever. But it is intriguing how one aspect that maybe they perhaps kind of skip over in this question of how does Christ execute the office of a king, is that he's utilizing the evil of the world to accomplish his purposes. 
and maybe a challenge for us today that as we observe the evil of the world, the brokenness of men and women, boys and girls, to remind us that King Jesus sits on his throne even now ruling and reigning, but there will be a day coming where it will be brought to consummation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth, even really hard passages. And oh God, we ask that you would, uh, even now, cause us to reflect on your kingdom for Christ's sake. Amen.